0: This week on Hacker in the Fed, we talk about Google ads being used to spread malware through malvertising. There's been another breach of 20,000 customers, and we get around to answering user questions.
1: Hector Monseguer was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. that caused up to $50
0: million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hackering the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent working my entire career in cybersecurity and now founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by Hector Monsiker, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for the large number of systems that he had the skill set to hack into. Now red teamer, researcher and cybersecurity expert, also friend and podcast co-host. Hey,
1: Hector, how are things going? pretty good man pretty good feeling much better that's for sure
0: good good i'm sure the audience is happy to hear that so uh how was your week uh, did you do anything fun
1: yeah if you consider a ton of work fun yeah i had a lot of fun
0: <laughs> sometimes you do enjoy work uh so it is fun but it's good it keeps us out of trouble right
1: yeah absolutely i agree
0: so crazy story coming out this week. And we'll start this will be our first thing we talk about this week. Uh the article was titled Until Further Notice, Think Twice Before Using Google to Download Software. Um, the ar- yeah, I know. The article talks about uh malvertising via Google Ads. And and so for the audience that doesn't know what malvertising is, it's the the practice of incorporating malware in online advertisements. So, you know, sort of a subject that uh, you know, we've kind of talked about you you and i have talked about before and you know but the idea has been out there but it looks like over the last couple days last week um researchers have really seen a spike in affected a number of ads like with with famous brands uh really coming out with with malware like it's not the norm that you and i are used to it's it's a huge spike these days
1: oh yeah no i mean look i mean the the attack vector itself uh, of using Google ads or similar. It's not new. It's been around for, for a very long time. But there are a lot of people now involved in this uh, in this sort of engagement. And they're very successful. There's been a lot of stories coming from this of uh, folks having their cryptocurrency wallets, drains, uh, of folks being compromised and having their YouTube channels taken. So it's been uh, it's been a hell of a ride for a lot of victims, unfortunately. And I feel very bad for all of them. Because, you know, when you, when you load up the service, you load up your browser, you do a Google search, you're expecting for the, the links you click on to be legitimate. But the one thing I'll say here is that it's not necessarily the brands that are targeting you. It's obviously bad actors who are pretending to be the brands that are targeting you.
0: The report says that over the last few months, the Google ads have been the, the go-to place for criminals to spread their malicious wares. Uh, they've been hiding in things like uh, Adobe Reader, uh, Microsoft Teams, uh, OBS, which is uh, an open broadcasting software. It's a video recording and, and live streaming software. Slack, Tor, and Thunderbird. All seeing an increase of you know people Googling those terms, wanting to download the software, uh, and that software takes you to a malicious site um, that includes uh, the malware in it.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it, it's definitely effective. I mean, we've seen social engineering become effective more and more. Um, even as organizations are starting to... To expand their security budgets, there's way more great tools like EDRs and all sorts of endpoint software and, and next generation firewalls and all these cool things. But here, we're looking at less less of an attack against an organization and more of an attack against the person behind the organization or within the organization. So yeah, it's, it's definitely effective. And you know, the one thing I'll say is this: is a highlight here, here is at least a takeaway that. In some of the cases, some of these cases, um, the attacks would have been prevented had the uh, victim had some sort of antivirus or EDR software kind of running in the background. I'm sure they did. Um, Unfortunately, it's very easy for adversaries to obfuscate these binaries, these these essentially malware, so that it kind of circumvents those controls, right? And that's a problem.
0: How are the malware guys obfuscating uh, some of this stuff? Do you know what they're doing?
1: Sure. So you know, there's a lot of different ways you can kind of deal with circumventing security controls. The first thing is for the for the adversary, you're hoping that the person you're targeting has disabled or ignores um, potential warnings from you know their their tools, uh, which happens more often than you may think. Um, but secondly, as they start to office, as they start to deal with getting around filters and detection systems these operators or these, rather these malware developers will start to obfuscate strings or signatures within the binary or they'll they'll create uh, a brand spanking new tool or a, a program that never, ever has been detected before. Additionally, they might use something called a stager. And a stager might be a very simple program that does nothing malicious aside from reaching out to a web server and downloading a payload that is executed in a, in a second stage. Believe it or not, of all the different kind of jobs I do, Red Team work especially, you see stages of all sorts kind of getting through these systems because they're very simple programs that really have nothing malicious within them themselves. So, yeah, it's definitely problematic. And we, I, I know for a fact that I, I speak to a lot of folks that, that either work at EDRs or on blue teams. You know, there's been a lot of work on detecting this stuff, but it's kind of like a, a cat and mouse game.
0: Well, sure. You brought up antivirus software and we call it AV or, you know, antivirus. Um, and, and really the function how that works is it has a bunch of definitions or it uses what's called hashes, um, which is sort of like a fingerprint on a file. Uh, it's a, it's a one way algorithm that generates a very long number you know, or a series of alphanumeric numbers that are able to put a definition on a file, so and if you change one little bit in the file, then that fingerprint changes. Uh, and the way AV work is they go through and index all the files that are coming in that you download and see if they match any of the the known fingerprints for bad files, uh, and then would you know sort of quarantine them or or shut them down, not let, allow them to hook. Does does AV work any other way? Is there any other special way that it does, or is it just purely these definitions?
1: I mean, that is a great question. Um, I know I mentioned a few moments ago EDR. That really stands for endpoint detection and response. So going back to your question directly, can a signature based system be effective in 2023? Honestly, uh, not so much. It will be able to catch known signatures, especially if you have an updated database. Windows Defender does a really good job at keeping that up to date as much as possible. But unfortunately, as you, you know, as we kind of both alluded to, it's rather easy for an adversary to kind of go around that or get around it by making enough modifications that the signature is brand new. Um, then you also have polymorphic type of of payloads that you know might have a payload that changes consistently or constantly, or maybe each time you download a binary off one of these malvertisement links, the binary may be different. It may be altered. It may be randomly generated, and so the signatures are always going to be different. So. Again, well back to your original question, a traditional AV may not be as effective today.
0: The AV, the way it works, and the way it gets the new definitions to know that it's a tech like a, a X number of percent of their clients have to have that infection identify it as an infection, and then that that is added to the index list of you know bad files, right? Basically, how traditional AV works.
1: Well, not automatically. Yeah. So if if a bad file is identified and it is reported. It'll go upstream. So let's look at, let's say, Windows Defender. It'll go upstream to Windows Defender, and there's a whole bunch of metrics and a whole bunch of data that's being processed on the backend. But someone somewhere has to make that uh, executive decision to say, yeah, I think this is bad, so let's add it to our definitions file. Sometimes that's, you know, that's not really effective in a very dynamic world. Well, you have binaries constantly changing and signatures constantly changing.
0: And that whole time that that, that process is happening, you know, more and more infections are happening.
1: That, absolutely, that's correct. Um, you will have more and more infections happening. And, you know, what may happen is if, for example, the defender team identifies that there's a pattern, that there is, let's say, 200 infections in the last 24 hours and then 400 in the next 48, that there might be, you know, an exponential threat there Um, And they may be able to then push to Defender, okay, we need to quarantine this host and or quarantine the files and or here's what we need to look for. But again, it it really depends product to product. Not all products work the same. They may have the base functionality of of a definition system or a signature-based system, but they may operate completely differently.
0: So if you you have the traditional signature-based AV system – is it better to have one that has many different prescribers? Uh, so you're going to have more and more options or more and more opportunity for that to be defined by someone before you.
1: Yeah. I mean, you would want to go with a product that has a ton of users because the spread is wider. The, pos- the possibility that an infection may be recognized by the teams that are running uh, or managing the definitions. Again, it all depends product to product. I've, I've read enough about Defender to know that it's probably one of the more effective tools, right, not to single out any company, but it's only because literally every Windows host on the planet has Defender installed on it.
0: Yeah, Windows sees so much traffic that you know they they're able to get those definitions quite quickly. You know they must have a, a robust system to turn them around and, and update those definitions. But again, if you if you are running an AV and it doesn't automatically download those new definitions, you're wasting your time because you're running an old subset of the known threats out there. You're not really protecting yourself.
1: Which brings us to the the next wave or the next generation of, of endpoint systems or endpoint protective systems. And you have the EDRs of the world. And so what a lot of the EDRs, uh, without mentioning names here, but a lot of the EDRs really focus on uh, behavior profiling and behavior analytics or they have some other signature systems that will try to identify uh, specific uh, tactics or techniques or procedures that would normally be used by other malware. So theoretically, depending on the product that you have, it may detect kind of like a zero-day infection just because it's looking at what the payload is executing as soon as it's executed on the system. Um, it might be able to identify that as a bad file, which is great. Th- I think the problem with those uh, different products is that they're very expensive. And they're u- they're usually purchased and managed by organizations and corporations. But for somebody at home to spend, you know, 5, 15, 25 grand for an EDR solution, it may be outside the realm of the scope of their budget.
0: Well, one thing I did find interesting in this article, the the author wrote that they did a, a Google search for a Visual Studio download on Thursday morning. Um, and a, a Google-sponsored link sent them to a site that was marked malicious by only one endpoint provider at the time. Um, but then by Thursday night, it was marked by 43 different anti-malware engines. So, you know, that site definition went very quickly. Um, and, and uh, you know, the author also went on to say that he searched – he. Search for different software, and Google sponsored links for known malware sites came back. Um, they were defined by these uh malware these anti malware engines, uh, but Google was still putting them out there so uh, Google's done a lot of great things to kind of stop this and and uh, you know stop the spread of malware, but it could be doing more because again uh, google sponsored links should not come back to known malware sites that have been defined by these these uh these engines
1: oh yeah, well, I remember when I was you know, when I first got back online um, after the whole prison experience and then, you know, being blocked offline for a couple of years, one of the first things I started doing was investigating like um, Bitcoin thefts. And, and I was able to help a few exchanges kind of deal with that. But the one thing I found is that even back then, and this was 2015, 2016, there were malvertisement, mal- you know, ads, Google ads that would point to like instead of blockchain.info, it would point to blockchain.whatever. Um, whatever other top level domain, people would log into these sites and submit their credentials, and boom, that's it. Bitcoin is gone, or or any other you know cryptocurrency they had at the, at the time. So it's definitely been problematic for quite some time. Here's the thing: I know Google has some major layoffs recently. They may want to really, really consider adding some people to the uh, to their Google Ads network and start looking at ways to deal with this.
0: But a simple domain change on one of these Google Ads—I mean, that—that's something that should be catchable pretty easy. Is—is um, uh, is it because it's all automated and there's no human interaction, or, or or why do you think that's getting through?
1: Well, I'm sure that Google has some some policies and some tests and checks in place to try to identify some of these spoofed domains or some of these invalid domains. But the reality is, is that it's no longer 1998. You know what I mean? Google has become such a massive infrastructure and their Google ads is like number one on the planet. So it's dealing with probably billions of impressions a day. Listen, it makes sense to me why they're kind of missing some of this stuff. And I'm sure they catch a lot of others, but um, even if it's 1% success rate, man, that's a lot of people that you're infecting.
0: And these bad guys are, you know, they're getting better and better with this too. You know, oh yeah, uh, I, I know we were approached to uh, to help a, a guy who his whole business was to circumvent Google rules in order to get uh, banned ads onto Google Ads, and <laughs> we we, just, we passed. We said no, thank you. Uh, that's not something we want to be a part of.
1: Yeah, no, because you know, at the end of the day, you could just get sued by Google. You know what I mean?
0: Take suing out of it. Just it didn't it didn't sit well with us. So that you know, we don't get involved in things that that, that don't sit well with us. So.
1: Oh yeah, there's also the ethical problem, right? So I completely get that. But yeah, it's it's a major issue. And the one the one recommendation we we'll make for the audience here is that Google is great. Google Ads are great. They work. Um, but instead of clicking on an ad, uh, you know, for let's say VLC or OBS or some software you need, just go to the vendor's website directly. That that'll help you mitigate a lot of this, uh, a lot of these stories for sure. But here's the thing too, right? The one thing I'll say is. It's going to take a bit of training because some of the Google ads look like they're they're legitimate ad um, search results. So that's another thing to take into account.
0: Yeah, definitely good 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 lesson for the listeners to just you know go to the site for what you're looking for and d- don't be tricked by these uh, cyber criminals that are just using Google Ad to uh, make themselves look good. Excellent point, Hector. Another big breach this week. Uh, it looks like uh, TruthFinder and the in InstaCheckmate uh, confirmed that there was a data breach uh, affecting 20 million customers. Hector, did you read about that?
1: Oh yeah, I read about it, and you know, uh, you know, the, these are the kind of stories that um, that bother me because you know, these data sets are not necessarily people that opted in, but they could have been added to the to the to the database by employers.
0: Yeah, so those that don't know, People Connect is the owner of Truthfinder and InstaCheckmate, which are background services. And, and they confirmed that they suffered a data breach after Hector's leaked their 2019 backup of the database uh, containing info of uh, millions of customers. Uh, and like Hector said, you know, these aren't people that entered their own information in there. These are people that you know this company went through and, and scraped together and sort of did a background check for like employment checks and that sort of thing. It's a subscription-based service that uh, allows customers to do background checks, you know, for incoming employees or something like that. So 20 million people uh, out there, uh, you know, could be affected by this. And, and, you know, I don't think it's – I think it's going to be a while before we understand who they are. Um, And it puts those 20 million people at risk. Um, You know, the information that was stolen, you're going to, you know, be on the lookout for phishing attacks. They're going to be very targeted phishing attacks. Uh, And also they can suffer from credential stuffing. Um, well, we talked about that before. Credential stuffing is where cyber criminals go around and use your username and known passwords on other sites uh, to try to get into certain sites. You know, That was uh, one of the big hacks of uh, Ring a few years ago was simply uh, uh, finding a, a site that allows you to try over and over and over again um, the, uh, different passwords. And so that, that's how that hack happens. So people need to be aware of this and know it's out there. Um, and I don't think, have you seen anything uh, where we know where the 20 million customers are, Hector?
1: No, I mean, I I kind of read the story, you know, kind of cursory. I didn't really like investigate if it was being sold on a forum, um, but I'm pretty sure the data is out there. I mean, there's, there's a whole community that kind of thrives off of this kind of data sets. And so, you know, the expectation or oh, the assumption should be that, yes, you're probably compromised. You want to make sure that you're your personal security policy and start rotating passwords when possible.
0: Yeah, well, actually, it's not being sold on a forum. It's being given out on a, a forum. So uh, it, it, it went public January 21st or 23. And I'm not going to give out where the forum is. Um, you probably can find it yourself. You know, we, we include links to the articles we talk about. So you trying to find that information on your own. The lucky part, it looks like the information was stolen on April 16th, 2019. So, you know, it's it's you know nearly four years old. But, you know, there's gonna be some people are gonna make uh, you know, password lists there because the the information include email address, hash passwords, first and last names, and phone numbers. So the person who wrote the article actually reached out to the owner of the forum and he confirmed that the data was stolen uh from an exposed data database backup
1: well there's, there's a lot of stories like that you'll find online where you know there's a there's a backup service somewhere that doesn't require credentials um, you know in these these fortunately a lot of researchers are finding these databases uh, relatively quick in this situation I'm not sure that's the case um, but you know it kind of goes to the idea that you know as you start signing up for services or your employers are signing you up for services there's a potential that you're always going to be you know, targeted as a result. There's always going to be some sort of leak or someone has access to the data that they probably shouldn't. So it's always good to be proactive about your security measures for sure.
0: Kind of an obvious place to go into. If, if I'm going to f- try to hack into something to get an information, why not go to a data aggregator who has all the information combined already so I don't have to do it myself? So, you know, these guys did the work to... Put groups of people together, uh, find, you know, real names and passwords and phone numbers to those people. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. like I said before, phishing attacks and credential stuffing are uh, going to go go way up in the next few weeks
1: because of this. Fun. Fun times, huh? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there we go again, Hector, scaring the shit out of our listeners. <laughs> we'll call it informing. We're informing you to be on the lookout and be aware. Uh, you know, share it with, with loved ones. Again, do, be aware that the, the phishing stuff is coming. So, Yeah. So, Hector, we uh, Hacker in the Fed, we take a lot of questions. We we love to hear our listener questions. If you want to reach out to us, it's at questions at com. Uh, I thought it was about time to catch up on them. We've got a ton of questions coming in. Sweet. So I went I went through and picked out a few, uh, and I figured now's a good time to enter, answer some of them.
1: Okay, yeah, let's do it. I, this, it's, my, my, this? it's my favorite segment for sure.
0: Greg, a a listener, he wrote, heard an interview from Matt from Team Poison. He mentioned that he doxed Hector, and Greg wants to know, was this used to help locate, find Hector? So, Greg, I know the interview you're talking about, and I know uh, Team Poison, and unfortunately, that was not. Um, We had found Hector prior to that coming out. Um, and started look, well, we had found Sabu and then connected Sabu to Hector around that same time. So I, I know team poison was taking some credit on that. Uh, but, uh, but it was not what the FBI used to, uh, ultimately find Hector. So Hector, did you remember when that, when that doxing happened or when it came out?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of doxing, not only from Team Poison, but like Hack the Planet and all these different groups and all these different people. I always find fascinating when, you know, some of these people, and by the way, that was a great uh, episode of Darknet Diaries. That was a very interesting time for me because to this day, you know, some of these people call me a a rad or a snitch. But then they also, in the same breath, will admit that, yeah, you know, we were snitching on Sabu to get him arrested. It's always fascinating to me to kind of hear that. But no, there was a lot of people involved, in, in you know, in my takedown, I've made mistakes—personal security mistakes, um, operational security mistakes—and so at the end of the day, in the grand scheme of things, I, you know, I was the resu- I was basically my my own downfall. Yeah, it's 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 definitely interesting to see how many people were involved. There was—I uh, know I mentioned this before, but this is great uh, researcher. She's, she's a she's a, an attorney, Theodora Michaels. I know that before, during, and after my arrest or at least the exposure of my arrest, she had done a really good research project into the number of different informants she found just by reading, you know, pacer documents and court documents. So yeah, I was doomed out of the way. But thanks for the question, Greg.
0: (laughs) So Ty wants to know, the ransomware attack that occurred to the company Kronos or Workforce last year, many of the companies didn't have access to their software service for quite some time. Um, What took so long in this case for a company this big to get its service back up and running after being compromised? Is it normal for it to take as long as it did? Uh, That's a good question, Ty. So let's give the audience a little bit of background on it. So in case they don't know what's going on here. So Kronos was a workforce management company. They had uh, 40 million people in in over 100 countries and tens of thousands of organizations that kind of did the the payroll, office attendance, and and more. And so in December 11th, 2011, uh, Kronos Private Cloud was compromised by ransomware. Um, and again, we just did a ransomware episode, but uh, to let people know what ransomware is, it's uh, you know when computer systems become infected with a malicious software that it locks access to the files and the data uh, until a ransom is paid. If the ransom is paid, there's no guarantees the data will be unlocked, but that's sort of the business behind what ransomware is. Um, do you remember this ransomware attack, Hector?
1: Yeah, no, I heard about it in passing, and um, you know it's always a tough situation when an organization is compromised, and they are a service provider. Um, So I think there's a very important question that Ty asked here, which is, is it normal for it to take as long as it did? Um, I mean, that's a superb question because it all depends on the organization. It all depends on the internal policies. It all depends on whether or not they have solid backup systems. It also depends on whether they have like a recovery plan or rapid recovery plan. And then finally, the scope of the compromise. How bad was it? We probably won't know how bad was it from Kronos' side, because that's, that's inside information anyway. But, you know, we saw recently with Rackspace when they had to deal with that, they had to deal with a ransomware on their service. It took them quite some time to kind of recover and deal with it. Now, let me, let me propose some scenarios or some variables for the audience here. So let's say you are a service provider, whatever it is, whether it's a cloud provider or a workforce service provider, you get compromised. Um, it affects your customers. Terrible. It also affects your business, which is worse. And they go hand in hand with each other. But now the problem that you face as um, you know, as a security team or as an organization is now you have to kind of delegate responsibilities to the right people. If you don't have a policy in place that defines who those people are, then you're basically going to have to recover from scratch um, at the worst possible moment. That's the problem. Now, let's assume that Kronos did have a a recovery plan. They they had security teams in place to kind of deal with this. The next thing is, okay, so we now we have to recover from backups. But do we know how far back the compromise actually goes? What we don't want to do is recover from backups and reintroduce the bad actor. So now you have to do an incident response. Now you have to do auditing and an investigation. You might have to bring in the FBI. You might have to bring in a a third-party vendor to help you deal with that process. So yeah, it could take anywhere between 48 hours in the best case scenario, all the way down to three months and even longer. Some companies go out of business.
0: Yeah, I, I think part we've talked about this many times before, Hector. But the timing of the attack is uh, is sort of interesting here. So you know, they timed the ransomware for a payroll company, at probably one of the most chaotic times of the year in you know December. You know, this is when bonus checks go out, paychecks for the holidays, and so really it puts a pressure on Kronos. You know, people need those paychecks around that time. They got to buy their kids gifts and that sort of thing, um, and so the companies had to, to create a temporary workaround and, and even employees missed paychecks. So that, you know, from from the, the bad guy standpoint, you know, that puts a lot more pressure on Kronos to make their customers satisfied in order to pay the ransom. Um, we're not sure if there's a ransom being paid. There's some reports that says it was paid. That's going to, you know... Ramp things up. Uh, people not being around that time frame. You know, it, it, it's a lot harder in December to get you know a, a vendor to come out and do your you know the investigation to fix it. Uh, people have planned vacations. It's, it's it's just you know timing of attack. I think played into this
1: one. Oh yeah, that's that is such a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, how, how do you deal with that in a scenario where it's end of year and you have employees out for vacation, um, you have executives out for vacation. And all you have is essentially a skeleton crew.
0: So, yeah, uh, Ty, a lot of things could have gone into this one. You know, the timing of the attack, like Hector said, what they had, how robust their backup system was. Uh, Maybe they did try to turn it back on and, you know, took a little bit longer because that was compromised and they had to shut it back down. Um, One thing, uh, Hector, we talked about the size of Kronos, that it had its services over 40 million people, 100 countries, tens of thousands of organizations. Have you ever found like the recovery on these sort of things kind of, uh, you know, uh, third party vendors kind of go to their most prized customers first and kind of start working with them and helping them? And it may take a a little longer. Like, I don't know where Ty worked or, you know, maybe his company only has, you know, a limited number of people and it's not the biggest Kronos, uh, you know, customer there is. Um, You know, when these systems come back online, have you seen it where they kind of, you know, service the bigger clients first?
1: Well, that, that is a great question, and you know, have I seen that? No, but I could only imagine that that plays a part as well.
0: So, you know, is it, we were talking before about you know j- having the the, the biggest uh, AV uh, antivirus definitions and all that. You you want to be part of that large group. Uh, you know, in this science, maybe it's a downside.
1: Could be a downside, hundred percent. I mean, it, it really again, it, it, there's so many variables involved in these situations that it's it's hard to really tell. You know, now the one thing I know is that there's a lot of discussion around different tools and different products that allow you to do something like rapid recovery. Um, I know a few of myself, um, you know, that, that have done some cool stuff in that field, but even then there's a lot of organizations that have not, you know, uh, kind of brought that in or implemented a rapid recovery solution. So listen, in the grand scheme of things, we're doing much better now, but imagine in the back of the eighties or nineties, when people were still using tape drives, there's a whole other set of variables that could have been an issue there as well. I think that just to kind of conclude on this, uh, at least from my opinion, uh, Chris, it's 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 too complicated of a system. The bigger the infrastructure is, and so it's always going to be difficult and unsurprising to anybody, especially the audience, if you hear about a big hack and then subsequently that big company, um, you know, has problems kind of reeling it in or dealing with recovery. Um, so I guess my point is expect more of this.
0: I mean, what one thing that came out of this is that Chrono said that the on premise and the self hosted companies for the software weren't affected. It was only the cloud based. And you and I have historically been very, very pro. You know, cloud based operations. You know, they update, they they take care of the uh, update, antivirus, the, the the updating the patches and the backups are, are done right there. Um, you know, on so. You know, a, a, kind of a, a knock against cloud-based services, but still, you know, uh, I'm uh, overall, I think it's it's best in this situation, probably not. But a couple of things to take away too is understanding your third-party vendor risks. Um, you know, if you're running a company out there, you know, there's some key points to doing it, you know, identify your vendors, you know, make a list in the risk assessments associated with, you know, having those vendors, uh, you know, support you like, like this in a payroll situation, um, analyze the risks of each of the vendors, you know, assess whether their security posture and determine the, the risk to your company if they lose that service, you know, have a plan in place if you can't pay, uh, can't reuse your payroll software you know, and then prioritize the vendors based on the risk. Um, and then monitor continuously, always be assessing. Don't just buy a product, let it run and, and never look back into it. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty pro third-party vendors on a lot of things. Um, you know, my company relies on some of a lot of the third-party vendors, um, but you can't just Buy it and forget about it. You have to, you know, go back to it continuously. Um, I was just telling Hector before we got here that we used a piece of software um, at Naxo. And, uh, you know, one of our guys found some flaws in the security of that, that software. Um, we reached out to the, C- the CEO of the company, got a message back that we didn't really care for, that security isn't our number one priority. That same day, we were shopping for a different vendor. Um, you know it's going to be a pain in our butt switching all the data from one vendor to another but you know security has to be part of the the, the process in determining your vendors and uh, especially for a security company like naxo uh, you know that's something we just can't stand for
1: oh yeah well i mean look you brought up some very good points there right so you you know a lot of organizations will hopefully will kind of work with uh uh risk assessments and threat modeling and you know, even tabletop exercises, as simple as they can be, the point is you kind of want to think about the worst case scenario. So, what's the worst case scenario if our, if our workforce, the you know workforce service goes offline? Can we get our people paid? Is that going to be a problem? Um, and if you start to see there are issues with what you have in place, and you need to start thinking about alternatives and/or backup plans. So, always having a plan is a, is, a, is a great move. So, yeah, Chris, I totally agree with you. Good, good point on that.
0: All right, onto our next question, Chris. Great name, Chris. I really like that. Um, he wrote in and asked us, uh, "What are what are your thoughts on AI integration into security and automation in cyber, the cyber industry?" Hector, what are your thoughts?
1: Ah, uh, this is this is one of my favorite questions because it's something I deal with every day as a security practitioner, as a researcher, and as someone that you know is vetting startups and new products. I'm seeing AI
0: first. What it what is AI?
1: Well, AI is artificial intelligence. Um, And depending on how it's implemented, it could be as simple as um, creating an algorithm that kind of, you know, tries to identify patterns, or it could be much more complex than that. Um, You know, there's kind of a spectrum of, of different areas of AI and machine learning. That you know could be useful for some things or not for others right
0: yeah a lot a lot of people in the news here you know, for a lot of listeners here are chat GPT. you know that that's a, a, an AI that's out there right now, so that you know when you're hearing the, these terms um that's sort of what they're talking about,
1: oh yeah, fantastic stuff, and I gotta say the the people that have uh, been monumental and instrumental in in developing these algorithms and developing like tools like chat gpt. Um, are fantastic. Big kudos to all of them, each and every one behind those products or those projects. Super proud of them. AI, you know, at some point AI was theoretical, um, or it was very rudimentary. It was very simple. It was very basic in concepts. Um, but as as you know, as research has progressed and and folks are getting into, um, they moved into you know data science and data warehousing and then turning that data into something useful it started to change the game. Um, So here's what I think. Here's my personal opinion. Can we integrate AI into security and automation? Yes. For cybersecurity? Absolutely. But there's there's one forewarning that I would give you. You know, just because you're able to run an assessment against your network and it's completely automated and you can run it 20 times a day, it doesn't mean that the results are going to be 100%. There still will need, uh, there will be a requirement of some sort of human factor for the very least validation. For some of you that have used chat GPT to kind of come up with code examples, you'll notice something very odd. And that is that although like, you know, 90% of the time, the code samples are pretty solid. There's always little, little minute details that are off with the code. Um, it could be because of the data set. It could be because a chat GPT guys, you know, made a left turn somewhere, you know, it, it could depend on a whole bunch of factors, but. Can we rely on it right now to do 100% or have 100% coverage in cybersecurity? No, definitely not. But can we incorporate it to improve cybersecurity? Absolutely. We already are. Uh, I mentioned EDRs before. Um, you know, some sort of, some tools, some products you actually use AI for behavior profiling and behavior analytics and identifying potential bad behavior. So, yes, we already have it. It's already being used in the cybersecurity industry, and I'm looking forward to seeing more and more uh, of different implementations.
0: So, Hector, I got a sort of a story to tell and and sort of an analogy, and I want your response to it. So there's a place – Hector and I both live in New York City. Um, There's a place called Fort Wadsworth, and Fort Wadsworth sort of protects the New York Harbor. Um, It's a a military base. I think it's the oldest military base, functional military base in the United States. Uh, It goes way back to the 1600s. Um, and Fort Wadsworth had these giant guns, uh, guns that weren't even allowed to be put on battleships, uh, because of, uh, you know, certain rules within war, um, that were put there to, to protect the Harbor and they, you know, shoot, could shoot way out into the Atlantic ocean, anything coming, trying to attack uh, New York city. Um, they brought in a bunch of military experts and, you know, they're like, what can we do to, you know, make this better and improve it and all that. And this, uh, Colonel in the Marines sat there and he said, well, first of all, we got to lock these guns in because the first thing someone's going to do is they're going to take over this fort and they're going to turn these guns around and they're going to use it to destroy New York city. Uh, they're going to take over these guns. So they put the guns in encasements where they, the guns could not be removed uh, from, from their holes uh, and not be used against us with that sort of analogy. And all uh, what we're seeing, do you see AI being able to use against us in, uh, in, in, cybersecurity? Uh, Are they going to use AI to attack us in in ways in the near future?
1: Eventually, right? Eventually, as you have bad actors with time, resources, and money, um, they will be able to develop projects to use AI to kind of, you know, do some sort of assessments, identify potential attack paths, um, and even engage in the worst case scenario. I wouldn't be surprised if someone right now is developing, you know, a tool using AI to kind of do that.
0: Do you think ChatGPT GPT could be used against
1: us? Well, chat Chad, GPT has already been used in proof of concepts to do things like circumvent capture prompts and other things. Um, you know, it's definitely effective. It can be used um, for bad if necessary by the actors, obviously. But can you can you kind of use that to automate an attack right now? Not yet. But I wouldn't be surprised if people are already in, kind of investigating that route.
0: I think that's my biggest concern is that we use AI, um, particularly to target people. Once we get inside, learn people's patterns and being able to use, you know, that against them. Um, the same way that we're using it to protect it. When we see, you know, AI finds an anomaly uh, in someone's behavioral pattern, you know that that's that's when we know that something might be off. Um, you know, I think we could use it to study that same pattern and, and be used against us. So good intake. I think AI is great. You know, I love technology. Uh, when I sat down with Lex Friedman, he's a big AI guy. He has a PhD, uh, and I think two PhDs with, you know, related to AI. And so, you know, big fan of, of all that stuff and, and uh, you know, scary, um, but, you know, technology pushes forward. So it's exciting. So Hector, our next question comes from Yehoshua, and I apologize if that's not how it's pronounced. Yehoshua.
1: You know, uh, fun fact, that is considered the original name of Jesus. Oh,
0: all right. Well, thank you, Hector. I I am not good at names to the point where I put this name into Google and let it say it to me about 20 times before we
1: recorded it, and I still messed it up it's all good
0: well they write in and say i'd be curious to hear your perspective on how hacker culture has changed uh nowadays do you find there is quote-unquote less honor among hackers Uh, we see romanticized depictions in film and tv but we hear about ransomware attacks on hospitals and such was there more of an ethos among hackers back in the day or has anarchy always been the main driver uh there seems to be a ratio of opportunist versus idealist but maybe the idealist employs self-deception. Hector, what are your thoughts on uh, on hackers today and the hacker culture and how it's it morphed into 2023?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think that yes, back in the days there was a lot more ethos. There was a lot more interest and knowledge hacking for knowledge, hacking for good. Um, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of stories that have not been publicized of hackers breaking into some sort of, you know, high sensitive or high you know, highly important uh, network or infrastructure or products to kind of deter some sort of bad action. Nowadays, it's about opportunity. There's a lot of folks involved in ransomware, in scamming, in spamming. Um, but the one thing I'll say is that there's always been kind of that that split, uh, Yeshua or Yehoshua. Um, there's always been kind of that split. There, there were anarchist hackers back in the days as well. Not everybody was hacking for good. Um, there was always bad guys, and it's, it's, it's going to remain that as well. But I, I do think that the, I think that the tides have changed for sure. I think that there's more bad actors than good actors, or gray actors, if you want to call them that.
0: So, as the former member and or leader of LULSEC who you know your mother was doing it for the for the lols or the laughs, do you find less of that this day, or are there are there guys, or are you just not involved in that scene, or or have knowledge of that scene?
1: I'll be honest with you, like I'm completely separate from that scene these days. But, from what I've seen so far um it seems like it's less there's some there's some you know hacks for the lows, sure, but it seems like there's more of the, the the bad stuff the ransomware the scamming the uh credential stuff and the sim swapping um you know even even things as dumb as doxing and and swatting um these are all malicious activities that you know kind of outweigh the good guys.
0: I sort of have a theory for that, and I think that theory kind of aligns with the rise of cryptocurrency. Um, you know, I'm pro cryptocurrency, um, but I think it's got some uh, downside to it. That criminal behavior is much easierly paid off, and so financially based hacking um, or cybercrime, crime, um, we're seeing a rise in it because it's easier to get paid now. Um, you don't have to go through the the channels of you know credit card dumps and selling credit cards, you know, on, on pennies for the dollar. Do you see any of that or do you think I'm full of shit?
1: No, I don't think you're full of shit. I completely agree. I mean, think about it before cryptocurrency or think about before cryptocurrency became widely adopted. If you wanted to cash out on your proceeds from, let's say, credit card sales or um, pin code sales or whatever, there was a track. There was something to trace. There was a there was a lingering PayPal account somewhere. There was somebody that you had to meet in the back alley somewhere to get your money, right? You know, it was easier for the FBI and easier for law enforcement in general to kind of intercept that along the way. Okay. Some, some of the biggest cases, right, of, of I would say carters, that's what they would call, it, people that sold credit cards. Some of the biggest cases of carters were be exactly that. They had to rely on uh on, on, on a paper trail in order to get paid. Now it's different. Now you could swap and exchange and trade crypto for different crypto into you know into more secure, private-centric currencies, and cash out in some in some way. It's very easy compared to back then. So yeah, I agree with you.
0: I mean, we've had encryption for a hundred years. I mean, longer than that. It, was, you know, it went back to the Egyptians when the encrypting the Romans had encryption, um, sort of. You know, but you know, electronic encryption, you know, been around for a long time. Was there ransomware before cryptocurrency? I, I don't remember if it was. There wasn't much.
1: Yeah, there, there was one major incident. I forgot the name of it, uh, but it was one major incident where someone had created malware. Um, this is we're talking about the eighties or so. It would affect your machine, and then you would have to send a a check over to the person through snail mail. But even further than that...
0: That that seems pretty traceable. (laughs) Who'd they make the check out to?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you literally type the first ransomware to Google, you're going to get that story. It's fascinating stuff. And maybe the guy that put that together was arrested at some point. But the, the reality is that ransomware has been around for quite some time, but it hasn't been effective or hadn't been effective until... Cryptocurrency became kind of a thing.
0: This leads into uh, John's question, uh, Hector. So he says, "I love to hear about your cool stories about from being a hacker, hacker wars from back in the day. Were there any hackers back then that you were scared of? If so, why?"
1: Not so much. There were.
0: There's no guy out there that you didn't fuck with that, that you would like. Oh, I can't fuck with that guy. He's got too much DDoS power or anything like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely that. When it comes to skill, not so much. Uh, when it comes to DDoS power, yeah, man, there was these two guys, there's this guy on, uh, I don't want to mention his name. I think he's a professional now and he's in the, he's in the United States. I I don't want to fuck his life up, but there was another guy that can mention, he was from Brazil and he had, let me tell you something, this guy had so much freaking dos power. So basically just to give you guys some, some kind of background, um, a lot of the oldest connected infrastructure on the internet were made up of very old Unix servers, mostly Solaris. And so there was a point in time where you had groups like LSDPL or Last Stage of Delirium from Poland who released a bunch of Solaris remote exploits. Well, these guys, um, they were ahead of the curve. As soon as those exploits came out, they started attacking and compromising some of these you know old infrastructure. And they updated and passed those systems and they kept access to it for like 10, 15 years. But here's the thing some of those servers were sitting unmetered in the center of data centers. They were not managed or, or you know, uh, they were not interacted with for, you know, 10, 15 years. So essentially, these guys had unlimited data center, you know, packet strength or power, unlimited bandwidth up to the T, and they could just shut down, you know, parts of the internet, ISPs, uh, you name it, they had power. And yeah, that that one guy used to DOS the shit out of my hosts. <laughs> but I would, I would always come back and I have my final say. So it, it actually goes back to, remember that fun story I told about like the chat wars on Fnet many years, uh, many episodes ago. Well, one of the guys that I ended up hacking was that guy. And we broke into a system that he was using as a bounce. And I got his Brazilian IP and I passed it over to somebody who dosted. it. Um, very corny, very childish, immature stuff. But yeah, there were definitely people that had a ton of power back in those days.
0: More great questions from the audience. I I really enjoy the questions that are coming in. Uh, If anybody has any further questions, you know, reach out at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Hector and I love doing this part and talking to the audience and talking about things directly they want to hear about. So another great episode, Hector. Uh, Thanks for joining me and talking to me. I always love speaking to you. Um, (laughs) New episodes every Thursday. Download them, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, my friend.